Welcome everybody, you made it despite the snow. I mean, I guess you guys didn't really have to leave your house despite the snow today, but that's all right. You know, I made it here, you made it here. And for some of us, that was quite some doing this week. You know what I mean? It took a lot of hope. It took some perseverance and some strong coffee. You know what I mean? You know that recipe. Well, wherever you're coming from this morning and whatever your week has been like, I just want to say welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, my name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here at Life Church Livonia. And welcome to week one of our new series, Relationship Goals. We've all got them, and we all wish we were doing a little bit better at them, you know? The internet loves this hashtag, Relationship Goals. On Instagram alone, there's 23 million photos, almost 23 million that have this hashtag. And they're always like these kind of dumb posts to me anyway, of like, you know, Mr. Famous is helping his woman out of the car at the Oscars. That's a man who stands by his woman. Hashtag relationship goals. And then like they divorce two weeks later, you know, it's just like kind of drives me batty a little bit. But the fact that this hashtag is so ubiquitous, it, it, it shows something in our culture that all of us are longing for better relationships in different areas of our lives. And all of us struggle to reach our relationship goals. It seems easy to attain when looking from afar, but if you have tried to build a flourishing and fulfilling relationship, you know it's a lot easier to guess wrong than it is to guess right. So if you're struggling in your relationships today, you know, I want you to know, I know that's not where you wanna be, but it's not where we're gonna stay either. I want you to know it's normal to struggle in these areas, in the area of relationships. Now, I'm not going to have you comment in the comments or anything if your relationships suck today. You know, we're not going to do anything like that. But I do want you to know we're all in the same boat. We are real people here at Life Church Livonia. And real people are almost always struggling with something or someone. But we are here to meet a real God and experience real life transformation in Jesus. It is normal to struggle in these areas, but that's why the Bible is not silent about how to do life in relationships well. God has not left us to blindly wander around to figure it out. God has spoken truth into your life and into my life through his word. And today we're going to be talking about God's relationship goals for marriage and singleness. But first, a story. A fun fact about me, my mom uh, worked for a scrapbooking company called Creative Memories when I was a child. And that means that I have a photo document, a photo album of every year of my life from when I was born till I graduated high school, and then I have a couple on top of that, okay? So I, my history is very well chronicled. And uh, at about <laughs> 19 months old, I get a picture like this. Look at this bad boy right here. This man knows style, okay? I think my style must have peaked in the early 90s. And I was looking through my photo albums looking for a story, and uh, I found one. And the story has nothing to do with this picture. I just thought it was awesome. <laughs> but the section of the photo album that I want to talk to you about looks a little bit something like this. And you'll notice at the top of this, it says, whoop, back one. Notice at the top of it, it says, The Vaseline Adventure. Now, it's never a good sign when you have a kid under two and they're able to move around and they're totally quiet somewhere. You know what I mean? So my, I was calling my mom, trying to look for a story for the sermon. And I said, is there any, any stories you can think of, mom, where I just like totally misused something? And she said, oh, I've got one. You have a photo album about it. 
<laughs> and it's the Vaseline adventure. She said, one day, you know, I'm trying to change your brother. And my brother Dylan was a baby at the time. And you said, mom, can I get some lotion? She said, sure, honey. You were already in the bathroom. And uh, it went totally silent. I said, Alex, no answer. Honey, no answer. And my mom goes, okay, this cannot be good. And so she walks into the bathroom and instead of lotion to put on my hands, I had handfuls of Vaseline that I had rubbed on my arms, down my legs, all over my face and through my hair. And I said, look, mom, I put on the lotion. <laughs> and these pictures are after two baths already. My mom says a little note there. It said she had to wash me six times to get the Vaseline out of my hair. And I don't have a picture of the, the first moment, the incident itself, but I imagine it looked a little something like this here. This is a picture of my boy Mac DeMarco uh, just being weird. <laughs> I imagine that the picture looked a little bit something like that. You see, I was too young to understand the purpose of Vaseline, let alone lotion, or really the purpose of anything, right? So I made up my own purpose. It's a hair gel. It's a face mask. It goes on your arms. You can put it on your legs. <laughs> and because I didn't understand its purpose, I used it incorrectly. Now, I'm sure all of us have stories of moments when we go, what? That's what that's for? You know, and some of those stories I'm sure get told around the dinner table a lot and at family gatherings, and they're really funny. And some of those stories are not so funny. And the point I want to make in this story is something really simple. When we don't understand something's purpose, we misuse it. Everyone talks about marriage. Everyone talks about singleness. It's a huge part of our culture. But have you ever wondered what the purpose of marriage is? Why do we do it? What's the intention behind it? Is marriage primarily about happiness? Is it about contentment for the, or, uh, commitment for the sake of raising healthy kids? Is it about social and financial stability and protection? Is it merely functional and pragmatic? Or is there something more to marriage? I'm sure that many different people would answer those questions very differently. But as Christians, we look for our answers to those questions, not in pop culture, not in human philosophy, not in sociology, not even in biology. We start with theology. We look to the Bible to hear what God has to say about these questions, and then we look to the other domains of life. Now, today we're going to look at three different things concerning marriage and singleness. We're going to be looking at what it is biblically, we're going to be looking at the history of marriage and singleness in the church, and we're going to look at what God's goals are for both of those things. So we're going to start with what is marriage in the Bible? What does the Bible have to say about it? We see the first group of marriages in Genesis chapter 1. And if you're familiar with your Bible, you may be shocked by that because Genesis chapter 1 is the story of God making everything. We call it the creation narrative. But this is the first place we see marriage happen in Scripture. And so this chapter is 31 verses. We're not going to read all of it, but we are going to read some snippets. And we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. And it reads like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. 
God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And that's Genesis 1, 1 through 8. Now, it's 31 verses. Like I said, we're not going to read all of it. So we're going to skip ahead to the end. The last thing that God makes. We just read the first two days of creation where God made light and darkness, i.e. day and night. And then he made, separated the waters above and waters below. It's a, a little bit of a debate what that could be. I think you could argue that that's the atmosphere of the earth versus space. You could also argue it's kind of uh, the beginning uh, of, of the world pre-land, right? Before any land masses were really, uh, had risen up out of the ocean that covers the world. It could be the ocean and space. You know, there's different debates about what that could be. But we're going to skip ahead to the last thing that God makes. It says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And I want you to notice something by reading these. We skipped a couple days. But we're going to come back to them. In each day of creation, there are these two things that God creates. Notice there's not three, there's not four, there's not five. Every day it's two. And each of these two creates this pairing. They're opposites of each other, right? Day and night, man and women, fruit and vegetables, land and sea. They're these two opposites that come together in order that life might be created and flourish upon the earth. Each of these pairings isn't just a random grouping. Each is actually a marriage. These, they're these two opposites that work with and against each other to create a whole thing together that causes life to be birthed and flourish on the earth. And we see seven different meta-marriages in Genesis chapter 1. And the seven marriages of Genesis chapter 1 are the heavens and the earth, light and darkness, waters above and waters below, land and sea, fruits and vegetables, male and female animals, and male and female people. And what we can see from this is that marriage is not just a social construct for the benefit of protecting or rearing children. Those are functions of marriage but not the purpose or source of marriage. Actually, the whole of creation exists in these marriages of two opposites that come together to make a whole, which causes life to flourish and exist. Through these kinds of meta-corporate marriages, the realities of physics, biology, ecology, sociology, and even theology exist. However, marriage isn't just a corporate meta-reality, right? Because in the very next chapter, God facilitates the marriage of two people, not just two large structures that make up all of creation. And the two people he facilitates this marriage between are Adam and Eve. He creates Eve from Adam and he presents her to Adam as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. 
And it kind of mirrors our relationship with Jesus as Christians. Because as Christians, we have this corporate relationship with Jesus as the church, but we each have an individual relationship with Jesus as well. And marriage, too, has a similar thing to it, a similar format. But what we see is that even though we participate in these personal marriages, we're part of a reality that is marriage in the created universe that goes way, way, way beyond us. We are not the sole proprietors, participants, or definers of marriage. We are just participants in it. Human beings in men and women form a marriage, but we are just participants in the greater narrative of marriage, not the sole definers of it. So in the meta sense, marriage is God bringing together two opposites to function as a whole that creates life and flourishing on the earth. And in the personal sense, marriage is a covenant union of a man and a woman as they participate in the design of all creation. Now, in church history, marriage and singleness have traded places in terms of which is more spiritual or good or right for godly people. Now, to be clear, neither has ever been truly uh, subversed to the other, but in different eras, different ones have been favored. In the early church, through the examples of Jesus and through the example of the Apostle Paul and other people, singleness was thought to be more spiritual than marriage. And marriage was kind of treated like a concession. Like, uh, I guess if you can't control your urges to be fruitful and multiply, you can get married. But really, spiritual people devote their lives to Jesus as singles. You know, that was kind of the attitude. And we can see that here in 1 Corinthians as Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, basically he's like, since you guys are sleeping around, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, meaning single, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned, which I think is hilarious that he has to say, like, it's okay, marriage isn't a sin, but, you know, and he says, and if a virgin marries, she is not sinned, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. So as we can see from this, Paul definitely favors singleness. And goes so far as to tell married people, like, it's not like you're sinning, but I wish you were single. <laughs> you know? And because singleness was seen as more holy, more consecrated to God, more spiritual than marriage for a long time, uh, it was really popular in the church. And this is most clearly seen in the Catholic culture of vowed celibacy, where celibate priests and monks and nuns set themselves apart to serve God. Greek and Russian Orthodoxy never really... Um, uh, they, they never required celibacy of priests and monks and nuns. Those, they were always allowed to be married. But in the Catholic Church, there's a strong tradition. Now, the idea of a vowed celibate may be kind of confusing and bizarre to our modern sensibilities. Because 
in American culture, uh, we get this impression that having our sexual experience, our sexual longing satisfied is a matter of identity. It's who we are at our most base form. And we hear it in movies when teen boys sleep with a girl and another character says, yeah, you become a man now, man. You lost your V card. Now you're a man. You know, or, or the, uh, a girl sleeps with a guy she likes and all of her friends celebrate with her like she's won some kind of award. You know, there's this sense that we aren't real people or we're missing a part of being human unless we're sexually active. And especially unless we're getting certain sexual fantasies uh, satisfied. But the Bible would radically disagree with that perspective. As we see above in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, both singleness and marriage are gifts from God that do not enhance nor diminish our human identity. Singleness was favored due to the freedom it allowed followers of Jesus to freely give of their time, talents, and treasures to the people they ministered to. Singleness allowed this breadth of ministry to a multitude of people, a connectedness that was simply unavailable to married folks. And it's unclear to me when the shift kind of began, but certainly by Martin Luther's Reformation 500 years ago, the script had kind of flipped. Now all of a sudden, being married was more favorable in the church than being single. And that's continued up to this point as a general undercurrent in the church, at least in European countries. You know, and I can't speak to uh, South America or Asia or Africa, but at some point, marriage and singleness, especially in European um, places flipped in, the, in their state of preference in church history. So now that we understand that marriage is not just a social construct or contract between people purely for social purposes, but it's actually a core building block of creation itself. And that throughout church history, singleness and marriage have flip-flopped in terms of which is more preferred for Christians. We can apply those now to God's goal for marriage and singleness so that we can understand what he wants out of these things. And we read that here in Ephesians chapter 5 as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. And this is what he says. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So I want to pause there. He says that he starts the whole thing with the reason we're doing this is to follow God's example. That's the point. That's the framework Paul is coming at marriage with. How do we follow God's example in marriage? And then he goes on to say, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So, quick side note, sexual immorality is simply the category of sin the Bible gives to any sexual experience outside of marriage. And so Paul connects sexual immorality, which is having a sexual experience outside of marriage, to greed. Which is the selfish desire for things I don't have and really don't have any right to. And one of the things I think is important to understand about this is sex is not bad, Right? And the best analogy I've heard for sex is it's like fire. It's not bad. It's not good or evil. It's just powerful. And if you light fire in the fireplace, it brings life, health, goodness to a home. If you light that same fire in the middle of the living room, the whole house comes down around you. 
And so marriage is the fireplace that God has created for this sexual relationship in the context of a commitment to him and each other that is a covenant, not a contract, right? Covenants are a promise I make that I say, I will die before I break this promise. So that's God's design for it. So sexual morality, Paul is saying, we don't want any of that in the church. It's not good for God's people. And then he continues to speak specifically to married couples. He says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, one without, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, there's a lot going on in this passage. And when this passage is often read, people zero in on the submission language and tend to get a little tender about it. But I miss, I think people miss what the real guts of this passage is about. Just like in 1 Corinthians, Paul is not advocating a dominating male hierarchy. Okay, that's not the point here. He's not even advocating equality. Paul is advocating something very different. He's proposing mutual submission, which means that each spouse is actively seeking to live as though the other person is more important than themselves. Equality means we're the same, right? Equal, 50-50. But the issue with equality in marriage is, if I submit to you, now you're above me and we're not equal anymore. So I've either got to pull myself back up to your level or pull you down or not submit at all in order to maintain equality. That creates a competition and it creates a record of service that's to be paid back in order to be equal. And the theological vision for marriage that Paul gives here is way bigger and much harder. This way of living in marriage advocates that each person in the marriage should seek to live in such a way that they're constantly elevating the other person and submitting themselves to the other. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, so that comes out in all the little conversations. Let's go out to the movies. You know, honey, what movie sounds good to you? Sweetheart, which restaurant would you like to eat at tonight? You know, I don't really love that restaurant, but I love being with you. What color do you think we should paint this room? Then it gets a little harder. Babe, what car do you think we should get? Or, my dear, I don't love this house, but you seem to like it best, and let's pick the house you like best. <gasps> right? Getting harder. My love, do you think I should take this job or not? Which baby name is your favorite? And the list goes on forever. 
And the reason Paul gives for this kind of mutual submission in marriage is in verse 32. And it's in verse 1. It's the whole point. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. That phrase, profound mystery, can also be translated as mega revelation or a mega revealing of a huge secret. And what Paul is saying in this is that marriage is the best analogy that can be given on earth for the way that God loves his people, the church. So the purpose of living in this mutual submission is to imitate and embody the relationship that Jesus has with his church. That's the whole point. The point of the way we live and serve and submit in marriage is so that when other people see our marriage, they would get an idea of what Jesus is like. You want to know what the kingdom of God looks like? God says to look at a godly marriage. I was really deeply reminded of this this summer when I listened to a sermon by a Salvation Army chaplain named Daniel Strickland. Daniel tells the story of going on a trip to Russia. She got to interview this guy named Vladimir Mikhailovich. And Vladimir Mikhailovich, uh, he's not the cosmonaut by the same name, okay? So, you know, you NASA folks out there, not the same guy. Anyway, Vladimir was a missionary. And he was born and raised in Russia, and he was a missionary to his people. And he just lived this crazy life. But Danielle didn't speak Russian, so she needed a translator. And her translator, Anna, was not a Christian. And Danielle was thrilled. Because she's like, oh my gosh, by the end of time, listening to Vladimir, it's going to be crazy. He's going to become a Christian. And so she interviewed Vladimir over the course of that week. And Vladimir told story after story after story of God's insane and miraculous provision. He told the story of how he got thrown in prison for, for preaching the gospel. And a fish showed up at his cell that had a whole Bible in its mouth. And then he took the Bible out of the fish's mouth and used it to lead 60 guys in that prison cell to Christ. And then later on in that same prison, he was singing hymns too loud in his cell like, Paul and Silas we talked about last week and so he got thrown into solitary confinement and then later he got sent to the gulag for preaching the gospel and, and the gulag in Russia was just brutal internment camps but he couldn't have a bible in the gulag so he sewed pages of it into his clothes and he's like coming up to people like hey you want to buy the book of Matthew you know what I mean he's like, like nothing is stopping this guy from preaching the gospel and so they had this amazing time and Daniel is so excited on the train ride home she's Mentions to Anna, so Anna, you know, you're not a Christian. What do you think of Vladimir? And Anna says, you know, Daniel, I don't think you're going to understand this because you're not from my culture. But the thing that struck me most about Vladimir's life was the way he treated his wife. And Danielle goes, weren't you listening? <laughs> like, what do you mean his wife? Like, what miracle was that? Come on, girl. Like, you're not even hearing me. What, is, what were you, did your ears closed the whole time? And Anna says, no, Danielle, this is what I meant. I don't think you're going to understand, but I, in, in my culture, I've never seen a man so tender, so gracious, so kind, so loving and so inclusive to his wife. Is that what Jesus is like? And that's what Paul's talking about here. That is God's goal for marriage and singleness. 
Marriage is not just about security. It's not just about reproduction. It's not just about sexual experiences that aren't sinful. It's not just about happiness. And singleness isn't missing the boat. And it's not just about freedom. It's not just about wanting to be tied down. The Bible gives us a larger theological vision for both marriage and singleness. Marriage and singleness are about embodying the love of God to a lost world. In marriage, we get to embody the depth of God's love for a few people. And in singleness, we get to embody the breadth of God's love for all humanity. But either way, they are meant to be a prophetic sign and wonder to a watching world about what God is really like. And now as I say that this morning, some of you are here and you're feeling like, man, oh my gosh, Alex, you just don't understand. I have a terrible marriage. My marriage is so far from that. And it has been for years. And I don't even know what to do. Like, I think what you're saying is great, but I don't even know how to start. You know, maybe you're right. Maybe I don't understand. I'm sure there are a lot of things I don't understand. But I do know it's never too late to begin treating the other person as more important than yourself. It's never too late to confess both to that person and the Lord and just say, yeah, I've been selfish. I'm sorry. I've been sinful. And I've been scared to change because if I don't serve me and satisfy my needs, who will? I'm sorry. Because I know this is not the right way to live. And I, I just need you to forgive me. And Lord, I need you to forgive me. And I need you to empower me by the Holy Spirit to do this thing your way. Because the reality is, your kids, your neighbors, your coworkers, they're already looking at your marriage and going, is that what Jesus is like? And that's the call. And it's a hard call. And it's only possible through the power of God. Some of us are here today and we're in marriages we really like. But it's easy to get things lost in schedules and bills and groceries and the kids' plays and sports and grades. And we've gotten lost in work or in hobbies or in Netflix or in Facebook. And we're doing life and it's fine. But we've lost sight of the great theological vision for our marriage. That it's not just a mutual partnership to get tasks done and make life run. It's a prophetic sign and wonder to a lost world and even to our own house world, households about the nature of God himself. Some of us are here today as dedicated celibates. And what I mean by dedicated celibates, it means that the hope and plan is not to stay single forever. You want to get married. But while you're celibate, you're committed to following God's plan for singleness, and so you remain celibate. And you might be hoping and praying and wishing for a godly relationship like I've just described. And if that's you this morning, I want you to hear this so clearly. Singleness is not a waiting room in which you wait for the rest of your life to begin. God has a job, a plan, a purpose for you right here, right now, right as you are. And you don't have to get married to become a real person and embody the gospel. You can do it right now. And I'm not sure if any of us here are vowed celibates, but vowed celibates are singles who are not looking for a relationship and not hoping to get married one day. I'm sure that desire is still there, but they have decided to commit their lives to the Lord as permanent singles in order to do effective ministry. Paul was a vowed celibate. 
You know, believe it or not, this is something I actually strongly considered in college. You know, Amber and I were friends, but we weren't dating yet. And, and I, I really liked Amber, but I met this man named Ken at a camp that I was serving at. Ken was in his 60s, and Ken was a vowed celibate. Not because he was a priest or a monk, but in his 30s he was engaged to a woman he really loved. Uh, but he also had a thriving ministry to high school students. And Ken had done such a good job building a relationship with these high schoolers that when it was 2 in the morning and they had gone to a party they really shouldn't have been at, and they took something or drank something, and now they're terrified to tell their parents, but they're messed up and they can't drive home, Ken was the guy they called. And when there was an away game and the, the high school jock that was really trying to follow Jesus but really struggled to and especially struggled on away games, Ken would go, be the guy that went to the game. And when they were having doubts about God and trying to figure out their faith and their Muslim friend invited them to the Eid celebration and they were just had these questions about religion, Ken was the guy they texted. And Ken just realized, man, this girl is great, but I'm going to trade that for her. Because the availability I have for these kids now is complete. I'm totally available to them. And I don't think I'm going to get rid of that. I don't think it would be honoring to God to get rid of that. And so Ken stayed single in order to better minister to multiple generations of high schoolers. And I was so inspired by that that I seriously considered it for a time. And so if you're single today, be it dedicated or vowed, I just want you to know singleness is not a waiting room in which you're waiting for the rest of your life to begin. God's got a mission for you right now. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus at all. And you just thought, you know, you're here by chance, you're checking out church. I want you to know you're not here by chance. God has brought you here on purpose because Jesus became, God became a human being in Jesus so that he might take the sins of the whole world and put them to death on a cross because those sins separated you and I from God. And just like with the Vaseline thing, we don't know the purpose of life. We don't know the purpose of marriage. We don't even know our own purpose. And so we're just trying to figure it out. And if you've been there, you just know how hard it is to guess right. And it's just breaking everything. And what breaks all this stuff is sin. And it's in you and it's in me. And Jesus came from heaven to earth so that he might put sin to death so that that would no longer separate you from God. And he rose from the dead so that he might invite you into a kind of life where God shows you your purpose. God shows you what you're here for. And God shows you how to live life and find life to the full in Jesus. That's why we're called Life Church. It's John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And if your life is full of stolen things, broken things, and destruction, be sure the devil's been at work there and sin has been rampant. And the verse finishes, but Jesus has come that we might have life and have it to the full, both in this life and the next. And I want to invite you into that this morning. So if you find yourself this morning, you're struggling in your marriage or you're just on autopilot. You find yourself wanting to be married and you're just waiting for life to begin in some ways. You find yourself considering vowed singleness, vowed celibacy. Or you find yourself far from God. I just want to invite you to pray with me right now. Father, I have done life my own way, and I'm sorry. And I ask, Lord, that you'd forgive me. Forgive me for the ways in which I just have blown this. But Lord, I want to do this your way. I want to be filled with purpose. I want to be filled with meaning. I want to be filled with hope.
And Lord, I want to know what to do with this life that I've been given. I pray you'd show me. Lord, help me to follow you in this area of marriage and singleness. And Lord, I surrender. I let you be the one that calls the shots on how to do this. Lord, I pray you'd speak to me and help me to follow you. Lord, forgive me for falling. And I pray, Lord, that you now would pick me back up and point me in a new direction. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you just prayed with me, please reach out to us via our digital connection card or in the comments so that we can help you take your next step with Jesus. And join us next week as Pastor Kate preaches on friendship for our week two of our series, Relationship Goals.